Hi, my name is Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way Part-Time Pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the Part-Time Pilot audio ground school podcast hey what's going on future pilots this is nick from part-time pilot thanks for joining me here on the audio ground school podcast where i go through every single lesson of our online ground school that you can consume for free in an audio format just another way that at part-time pilot we're making it making the studying and piloting and learning to become a pilot a little bit easier for the modern day pilot that is busy on the go and struggling to find time where they can fit in their studies. So this is just another way we do that. And I thank you guys for joining me. This is episode number 17. Now I want to just make a quick announcement. You know, I mentioned throughout these episodes, I, I mentioned figures and diagrams and quizzes that are from our online ground school and i really think that if you want the whole package and the whole learning experience including our live lessons plus q a's over zoom you'll all you'll want to get into our online ground school you can go to parttimepilot.com and just click in the menu on online ground school and the thing i want to announce here is we did this last year and it was super super popular i think we had the most students we've ever had it within like one week join the online ground school and that was a black friday and cyber monday deal so we're gonna do that again and that's it's gonna be 30 percent off the online ground school it's just that still that one-time payment for 30 percent off that means our online ground school which is right now 199.99 you'll get $60 off that ground school. That's just, it, it makes it $140 for lifetime access to our online ground school, which is already the best online ground school. We have yet to have a student pilot fail their exam, and now you can get it at half the price of Kings or Sporties during this Black Friday deal. So it'll start this Friday. This episode should be released on November 21st. So happy Thanksgiving to everyone out there who is listening and the day after thanksgiving right black friday we're going to announce that deal and we'll have a coupon code that you can use so be on the lookout for that coupon code and next monday will be cyber monday and also announce the coupon code on next monday's episode for you to get it and it will be open for probably about we did it about Definitely Black Friday and through the weekend and Monday, and we might extend it one or two days after that for that limited time deal that was super popular last year. We want to give you guys a chance to get these deals. Who doesn't like getting a deal? And so 
Uh, this is just one more chance. And don't forget that we give out scholarships. And no matter what price you get in the online ground squat, you're locked into that for life. You get free updates for the rest of your life. All the bonus content, you're eligible for our scholarship. We just gave out a scholarship not too long ago. The first place got $1,000. Second place got free ground school, so we refunded them what they paid for ground school. And then third place, we gave them a cool part-time pilot hat. So go and check that out and be on the lookout for that Black Friday deal coming up this week. And happy Thanksgiving. So let's get started with Section 5. Last Last couple episodes were on Section 4 of the Online Ground School on aircraft airworthiness requirements. Really important lesson, especially for those of you preparing for a check ride. You'll have to show the examiner that your aircraft is airworthy. So that is, those are some very important episodes. You want to go check those out. Today, we're getting into Section 5 on weather theory charts and weather information. We're going to start with air masses and weather systems. So let's get into it. There is an abundance of weather information available to pilots. It is critical that as a pilot, you are able to sort out which types of weather reports you need for a particular flight and how to read those reports. The more information, the better. Reading and interpreting weather information for pilots can be difficult because of the shorthand used in these reports. First, it is important to understand the fundamentals of air masses and weather associated with these systems so that you can understand a high-level report from a weatherman in aviation weather briefs. Every physical process of weather is accompanied by or is a result of a heat exchange. The basic weather systems are warm fronts, cold fronts, high pressure, and low pressure systems. Reading and interpreting weather information for pilots can be difficult because of the shorthand used in these reports. First, it is important to understand the fundamentals of air masses and the weather associated with these systems so that you can understand a high-level report from weathermen, weatherwomen, and aviation weather briefers. Every physical process of weather is accompanied by or is the result of a heat exchange. And we'll get to about how that global weather is created by the sun and this heat exchange that we're talking about in a little bit. The basic weather systems that are caused by these heat exchanges from the sun are warm fronts, cold fronts, high pressure, and low pressure systems. When you watch the local news channel during a weather update, you will often hear the weather man or woman talk about fronts and pressure systems. A front is a term used to describe the front end or advancing edge of an air mass that will soon replace the air mass that's over the specific region it is moving into. So when we mention a warm front, we can think of an advancing mass of warm air. And when we mention a cold front, we can think of an advancing mass of cold air. One of the most easily recognized discontinuities across a front, again, remember that the frontal area, the front face between, whether that it's a warm front, that moving front, and the front that it's moving into. So that one of the most easily recognized discontinuities across that front is a change in temperature. A high pressure system, so, so at, and that makes sense, right? A warm front is moving in to a cold air mass, and so across that, that boundary from the cold air to the warm air, you're going to have a change in temperature. That's what that is saying. One of the most easily recognized discontinuities across the front is a change in temperature. So you can see, so when you see these on, on maps and stuff, you'll see they have these areas, uh, uh, po pockets of 
warm air and cold air, and that boundary between the two is called the front. A high pressure system is an area in which the atmospheric pressure of the region is higher than the surrounding area, while a low pressure system is an area in which the pressure is lower than the surrounding area. Pressure systems and fronts are depicted in a surface prognosis chart as seen in the figure in the ground school. And we have a video that will also show these figures that we will put in the show notes so that you can check that out. But if you're following along in the ground school, and if you're not, highly recommend that you do so you can get the full experience. You can see these images and figures that I've especially made to enhance your learning and then take the quizzes on these lessons. But if you want to go and check that out, you can see the L's and the H's for the high and low pressure as as well as the isobar lines and the labeled pressures in millibars. And then you can also see the lines for the red and blue lines as well as the orange lines and purple lines with with all these different things which say you know describe cold fronts warm fronts stationary fronts occluded fronts high low pressures troughs all sorts of things like that so again check that out if you're in the online ground school as you can see in that figure if you're following along again the legend uh below the map will tell you that a blue H depicts a high pressure system and a red L depicts a low pressure system. The boundary of the pressure systems are depicted by gray lines on the map called isobars. An isobar is defined as a line on a map that connects points of equal atmospheric pressure at a given time. Several isobar lines close together represents areas of changing pressure or a high pressure gradient. Each isobar is labeled by a number, which is the pressure in millibars. So if you've looked at it at any map, topographical map, like a sectional chart, for example, you see these lines that connect the same line of elevation, right? You see these little gray lines and then they or like a contoured color where when the elevation is higher, this two-dimensional map will change color to show you change color or you'll have these little lines showing you that the elevation is changing this contour of lines the uh or so this is the same thing with that but instead of changes in elevation we're depicting changes in pressure and those lines are called isobars and so isobar connects areas where the pressure is the same at any given time so if you have a bunch of these lines one after the other in this area, you know that the pressure is changing rapidly in that area where you have a bunch of these lines. If there's no lines in an area, then you know it's pretty much even pressure around this large area because there's not a line of those lines. If there's a lot, the more the lines you see, the more the pressure is changing because each line represents a different pressure. So fronts, fronts are also depicted in this image. A cold front is depicted with a blue line with blue triangles on it. The the pointy edge of the triangle points toward the direction of movement of the front. And I've highlighted this in another image and labeled the cold front, which you can see if you're following along in the online ground school. A warm front is also depicted, and this will be the lines that are red with red semicircles on it. Again, the side with the semicircle, the, the where those semicircles are pointing, is points towards the direction that the warm front is moving. 
a stationary front or a pair of fronts, both warm and cold, that are both not strong enough to replace the other and are therefore unmoving or stationary, those are depicted as alternating blue lines with blue triangles and red lines with red semicircles. So it's basically a combination where you you'll have a a blue line with a blue triangle on it, and then you also then the next right next to it you'll have a red line with a red semicircle in it. And again, the triangles and semicircles point to where the the cold fronts and warm fronts are coming from. So you can tell which side of that line the cold air or the warm air is and they're stagnant right there they're they're unmoving neither one of them can overcome the other so it's a stagnant area boundary between a warm front and a cold front so you can see this again in an image that i have in the online ground school i've labeled it and you can see which side the warm air is coming from and which side the cold air is coming from and where that boundary or unmoving boundary is between them occluded fronts are also depicted on this chart and again you can see that picture in the online ground school by a purple line with purple triangles and purple semicircles that both point in the same direction an occluded front is a composite of two frontal systems that merge as a result of occlusion and we'll get more into the detail of all these fronts in a second but i just want to make sure that you know when you're looking at these weather charts you can see and depict which ones are which because fronts are areas where temperature opposites meet, weather changes are usually found along their edge. So again, all we mentioned all weather is decide, is created by a heat exchange. Well, heat exchange happens between areas of different pressure, right? So when you have these areas of different pressure and they meet, that boundary where they meet or these fronts is where you're going to have heat exchange and that is where weather is going to be created most often so let's get into these a little bit more detail first one is warm fronts warm fronts form when moist warm air slides up and over cold air as it rises it condenses into stratus type clouds which generally create a cloud ceiling there is generally widespread precipitation bad visibility, and low turbulence under the ceiling of clouds. Steady pre precipitation preceding any front is an indication of stratiform clouds with little or no turbulence. Warm fronts are depicted on prognosis or synoptic charts as a red line with red semicircles. And so we already mentioned that, and I want to mention these things again, and I want you to start to look for a trend when I talk about, I'm going to say, what type of clouds these fronts you know how these fronts interact what type of clouds they create and then what type of weather it creates and you might find a pattern in some of these okay I mentioned that steady precipitation preceding any front is an indication of stratiform clouds with little or no turbulence the reason stratiform clouds so stratiform clouds are elongated clouds that sort of form a layer or a ceiling these clouds are not building in elevation they're not cumulus they're not building higher in elevation they're sort of like wispy uh flattened clouds and so that makes sense to have no turbulence because turbulence comes when you have rising air when you have vertical development of air movement and wind that's what causes most often wind shear and turbulence so 
when you see a stratiform cloud, you should think, well, there's not a lot of air rising. The air is moving, you know, sideways along the ground and keeping those clouds sort of flat. And that is a sign that there might not be turbulence there. There's going to be a ceiling, which sucks for, for you as a private pilot, but there might not be any turbulence below that ceiling. And then you also probably have widespread precipitation if those clouds are, are you know, thick enough to, to produce rain. And that widespread precipitation will probably give bad visibility. So although you have, you know, low turbulence, you might have bad visibility in that low ceiling. So this might not be conducive to a private pilot flight. So when, as a student pilot, if you start to see, you know, think of these things, you see on, on the weather in the morning, your local weatherman or woman talking about a warm front coming in, you can start to think, well, a warm front is going to move up and over cold air. And as that warm air slides up and over the cold air any moisture in that air is going to condense into these clouds and it's gonna form a layer of clouds and a ceiling so you can expect a ceiling for flights that day so just one of the things to start start looking out for as a student pilot as you're planning your flights try and practice by by watching the news and trying to understand these sort of things so just one more time a couple things that i want to repeat so that you remember about warm fronts so they form when moist, warm air slides up and over cold air. Remember, the warm front means the warm air is moving, so it's sliding up and over the cold air. As it rises, it condenses in the stratus-type clouds, which generally create a cloud ceiling. There's generally widespread precipitation, low, bad visibility, and low turbulence under the ceiling. All right, and then we have a picture in here in the online ground school which shows this movement, the clouds, and we have a little aircraft in there as well. So give you a visual representation of what I'm talking about. And again, I'm going to post a video where we talk about all this stuff as well in the show notes. All right, let's move on to cold fronts. But before we do, I just want to take a quick break to talk about a couple things that might you guys might be interested in. I'm always trying to find good deals for you guys and and important information that I want. I think the podcast is a great way to announce that. So just give it a few minutes, take, take a break, and just listen to these important topics. Hey pilots, it's Nick here from Part-Time Pilot. Did you guys know that you didn't have to spend $1,200 or $1,000 or even $600 to get your very own pair of headsets? Now, when I first heard of core headsets, core aviation headsets, I heard from a friend. I had to check them out myself because he said he only got them for $100. And at the time, I was borrowing from a pair of David Clarks from my flight school, and I was borrowing these broken down. They, they always had issues, and they were always sweaty from the previous student. So I was very curious i ended up getting gifted a pair of bose headsets a 1200 pair of bose headsets but i still wanted to check out a pair of core aviation headsets and i was super amazed at the amount it compared to my expensive bose headsets and it made me think you know i was gifted those bose headsets but i would never have especially as a student pilot bought something so expensive at the beginning of my training career so these are the perfect flight headsets for a student pilot or a private pilot 
and you can get the P1 version at coreheadset.com. You get a P1 version for $109.99 right now. They're having a sale. And or you can get their KA1 version, which I just bought another pair because I want to see what kind of updates they've made, even though my previous KA1s are still working today after three years and I've never had one single comm failure with them. Anyways, the KA1s are also on sale on one at $194.99. You can get your brand new quality headsets and it even comes with a five-year warranty. And then the best part about all of this is I already told you it's on sale and they have free shipping, but you can get an additional 10% off if you use the coupon code PartTimePilot. That's PartTimePilot with no spaces. Use the coupon code to get 10% off free shipping plus the sale that they're already having for your very own quality pair of headsets that I myself recommend, highly, highly recommend for a beginner headset student pilot. So go check that out at coreheadset.com. That's core with a K, K-O-R-E-H-E-A-D-S-E-T. That's coreheadset.com and use the coupon code part-time pilot. I'll also put a link in the show notes. Okay, let's continue on with cold fronts. Cold fronts form when cold air pushes under a warm air mass, forcing the warm air to rise. Thunderheads and cumulus-type clouds can form as moisture in the air rises, cools, and condenses. Cold fronts are usually associated with poor weather as thunderstorms and showers can mature. There is moderate to high turbulence due to the rising air. Visibility is good unless there are rain showers or other kinds of precipitation. As a cold front moves through, cool and fair weather follows. Cold fronts are depicted on prognosis or synoptic charts as blue lines with blue triangles. Again, we have a picture of cold air and warm air meeting and what that interaction creates in terms of clouds and air movement with a plane and some picture of precipitation and all that in the online ground school or in that video that I will post in the show notes. So again, remember with a warm front. The warm front means the warm air is moving. When the warm air is moving, it slides up and over and sort of slides over smoothly over and creates over the cold front. So it does rise a little bit, so the moisture in there will condense as it goes up in altitude, but then it sort of goes back to going horizontally and that creates the stratiform type clouds. Cold fronts are the opposite. When they're moving, they push the warm air up. So warm air is less dense, okay? So warm air, you know, as we get into density altitude, you'll know that the temperature, as temperature goes up, the density of air goes down. So the reason why warm air is always being either pushed up above or sliding up above is because it's less dense. So think of it as like buoyant and floating. When you're less dense, you'll, you'll float to the top, right? So when the warm air is moving in a warm front, it slides up, the less dense warm air slides up and over the cold air. But when a cold front comes in, the cold air doesn't slide up and over the warm front because the warm air is less dense. So it gets pushed out of the way and it gets pushed up. So the cold air is more dense and stays low to the ground and that there's no room for the warm air. So warm air has to be pushed up. That's when you get this vertical movement of air which we talked about 
is instability when you're flying. It's in unstable air when you have vertical development of air when a cold front comes in and pushes that warm air up. So you still get air rising and then the moisture in that air is condensing, but it's a more vertical movement, which is gonna create more turbulence because again, turbulence is caused by that vertical movement of air. And then you're gonna get clouds that are not those smooth horizontal stratiform clouds that are widespread sort of ceilings. You're gonna get these building cumulus thunderhead clouds. So cold fronts are often associated with thunderstorms because of that vertical development, it creates that vertical building of clouds because it's pushing that warm air up. You get the vertical development and convection of a thunderstorm with the, the, the cold air coming in. So just to repeat some of the things that I said that you need to remember about cold fronts, uh, they form when cold air pushes under a warm air mass, forcing the warm air to rise. Thunderset, thunderheads and cumulus type clouds can form as moisture in the warm air rises, cools, and condenses. Uh, they're usually associated with poor weather, as you can imagine, because of that vertical development and the thunderstorms. And then as the thunderstorm matures, which we'll get into in the next lesson, you get that heavy precipitation or rain showers. So there's moderate to high turbulence in a cold front because, of, again, that rising air. And the visibility is usually good underneath there because that rising air, that air is rising. So you don't have a lot of stagnant air. But once the rain showers start for the, thun the thunderstorm, then the, the visibility sort of goes down the hill. So it depends on what, how mature that thunderstorm is for your visibility. As a cold front moves through, though, cool and fair weather follows. So usually after a cold front moves in, you'll have good flying condition weather. You just want to make sure that the, you know, that thunderstorm is out of the way, and then you should have good fair weather so again another thing you can look for when you know in your morning news with that cold front is coming in you know there might be some turbulence if you're going to be flying during it or might be have some thunderstorm activity if maybe you're planning a cross-country flight you don't want to fly through that cold front coming in that boundary line because you might find some rising air thunderstorm activity in that area next up is stationary fronts a stationary front is where both a cold front and a warm front merge. Neither front is strong enough to replace the other and the result is a stagnant merging of both fronts. Stationary fronts are depicted on prognosis or synoptic charts as a mixture of blue lines with tri blue triangles of a cold front and the red line with red semicircles of a warm front. The weather associated with a st stationary front is typically a mixture of weather from both warm and cold fronts. Pilots can expect the weather in the area to persist for several days again because of that stagnation and the surface winds will blow parallel to the frontal zone so again go in the online ground school check out this picture because a, a visualization can really help with these sorts of lessons i'll try to explain it but so you have cold air on one side you have warm air they meet each other and neither one is more powerful so they just stay right there you you're getting that you're still getting that heat exchange right at the boundary so you are getting some sorts of different interactions with, with the, the warm air and the cold air. There's probably going to be some rising air, but there's also probably going to be some warm air, you know, sliding up and over. So you might have a mixture of stratiform clouds and also cumulus type clouds. You might have some rain and that weather's probably going to stay for a little while. And then also the surface winds are going to blow parallel to the frontal zone. 
So it's a it's a one of the way you can kind of predict winds as a pilot if you're in a stationary a stationary front. Okay, so I had to take a sip of tea. The next up is occluded fronts. Occluded fronts occur when a faster moving front catches up with a slower moving front and overtakes it, causing the merging of three air masses. This is what we call an occlusion. There are two types of occlusions, a cold occlusion and a warm occlusion. A cold occlusion is when a cold front overtakes a warm front that is pushing into a cooler mass of air. So we have we have a warm front, right? And it's that means the warm air is moving into the cold air. But then behind this warm front, moving in the same in the same direction is a cold front. So cold a mass of cold air. And it kept, it's moving faster. So it's overtaking the warm air. And then finally, it gets to the point where all three of these sort of meet up at the same time. And a warm occlusion is when a warm front overtakes another warm front, pushing into a colder mass of air. So that's when you have two warm fronts meeting a cold front. I know this is kind of hard to hard to think about but it does happen and just think you have multiple masses of air more than just two and they kind they're kind of merging and we have different names whether there's two cold fronts or two warm fronts occluded fronts can be found with the characteristic characteristic characteristics sorry of both warm and cold fronts the weather is usually more tightly packed because of the merging air masses this causes the clouds to become oversaturated to the point where they dump water in the form of rain showers. So because you have three different air masses, you have them all sort of packed tightly in this one thing, You all your precipitation and moisture is kind of compacted into these clouds in a small area, and so you're probably going to have rain in a small area, rain showers in a small area. A cold occlusion is the most common because cold fronts move much faster than warm fronts. This might be confusing because cold molecules move slower than warm molecules because they are more densely packed and have less energy. However, in the atmosphere, cold fronts are associated with areas of greater pressure change. You can see this on weather charts with isobars, lines that show areas of equal pressure. The isobars and cold air masses are closer together, meaning the pressure is changing more over a given distance. We talked about that before. When pressure changes more, it drives airflow, wind, so this is why cold fronts generally move faster than warm fronts. And again, we have a picture of sort of a step-by-step -step of how you can see these occlusions happen with these cold air, warm air, and, and the clouds and how they develop and all that stuff. The last thing I want to talk about is squall lines. Squall lines are a non-frontal narrow band of active thunderstorms that often develop ahead of a cold front. And that's what a squall line is. So you might get this question asked on the FA written. That is why it is included. And you, you may see it. So let's repeat it again. A non-frontal narrow band of active thunderstorms. So a narrow band of active thunderstorms often develops ahead of a cold front is known as a squall line. They often form from convective updrafts in or near mountain ranges and linear weather boundaries, usually strong cold fronts or troughs of low pressure. Squall lines tend to be hundreds of miles long. You can get heavy rain, hail, and damaging winds when in a squall line. So think of a thunderstorm, but a big line of thunderstorms that would develop ahead of a cold front. So it's, it's not a front itself, but they are associated ahead of cold fronts. So something you'll want to remember 
Okay, so that's what wraps up the fronts. Let's move on to pressure systems. And we're gonna start with high pressure systems. A high pressure air mass brings in settled dry weather. Cold air moving from upper layers of the atmosphere towards the Earth's surface becomes more dense as it sinks and the water that's inside vaporizes. So rather than condensing when it rises, when it sinks, it vaporizes so you get drier air. There's no water to form clouds and the air is stable and dry. High pressure systems rotate in a clockwise direction when in the northern hemisphere and counterclockwise direction when in the southern hemisphere. So I'll repeat these in a sec. It's easy to remember high pressure systems movement as down from upper atmosphere, rotating clockwise in northern hemisphere, and propagating outward, the rotational area expands. All right, so that was a lot. There's a, a, a figure that depicts with lines and how they spin in the northern hemisphere and where the air comes from and all that for a high pressure system. But here are some of the things you want to remember as a student pilot. They bring in settled, dry weather. Again, because the cold air moving from upper layers of the atmosphere comes down to the Earth's surface, it sinks, the water inside vaporizes, so you get that stable, dry air for a high pressure system. So remember, settled, dry weather, that means good, generally good for flying in a high pressure system. They rotate clockwise in the northern hemisphere and counterclockwise in the southern hemisphere. So you're, if you're flying in the United States, you're gonna be flying in the northern hemisphere. So they're going to rotate in the clockwise direction. One way to remember this is high pressure systems move, movement is down from the upper atmosphere, clockwise, and propagating outward. Meaning, as it's spinning clockwise, it's also, go there. the air is leaving outward. And again, we have a picture of this that depicts this very well. It's a little hard to explain in words, so please go check that out. All right, low pressure systems. Low pressure air masses bring in unsettled weather with precipitation or storm. So the opposite of high pressure system, which was settled weather and dry air. Low pressure systems bring in unsettled weather with precipitation or storms. Low pressure systems are systems of air that rise due to warmer land or air or water below it. The air becomes hot and it expands, becoming less dense. When there is moisture in the air mass, it weighs less as vapor than air does, and this causes it to rise and condense. The result is wet, less dense air that rises and cools. Low pressure systems rotate in the counterclockwise direction when in the northern hemisphere, so again, opposite of high pressure systems, and clockwise when in the southern hemisphere. But you really, you know, most people listening are going to be in the United States, so just remember the northern hemisphere, which is counterclockwise direction for low pressure systems. It's easy to remember low pressure systems movement as up from the surface, so it moves up. It rotates counterclockwise, again, when you're in the northern hemisphere, and inward, so opposite, all opposites of the high pressure system, and we again have a great picture that visualizes this for you in the online ground school. Uh, this is a lot to remember, and this does not definitely explain everything of high and low pressure systems. There's probably gonna be some meteorologists out there that eventually listens to this and is like, this guy is leaving out so much, but there is so much with weather theory that I tried to keep it 
condensed as possible for what you need to remember as a student pilot, especially just for private pilot. Okay, so I want you just to remember those sort of things that I mentioned. And to do that, I kind of came up with a, a pretty, I, I love mnemonic devices. I came up with a, a pretty cheesy one to remember the directions that high and low pressure systems move in the Northern Hemisphere, where we, where we, again, where most of the students listening will always fly. And then just remember that Southern Hemisphere is the opposite. So maybe, maybe this might help you. Um, don't make fun of me, but whatever you can come up with to help you memorize this stuff is always helpful. So even if it is cheesy or whatever, just remember that if it helps you, then who cares? So high pressure is downright out of this world. That means high pressure travels down from the upper atmosphere, spins to the right, and propagates out. High pressure is downright out of this world. <laughs> and then here, the, don't worry, it gets even better. Low pressure up in this bitch. <laughs> All right. Sorry for uh, my cursing. Uh, you can change that last word with whatever you want. And uh, <laughs> up in this mother, whatever you, whatever you want to say, but low pressure up in here for the PG version. Low pressure travels up from lower atmosphere and propagates in. Then I just remember it spins opposite of high pressure, so to the left or counterclockwise. So low pressure up in here, low pressure travels up from lower and propagates in, so up in. So, And then I just remember that it spins opposite of high pressure, so to the left or counterclockwise. So high pressure is down right out of this world, so down right out. High pressure travels down, it spins to the right or clockwise and it propagates out. Low pressure up in, it travels up, it propagates in, and it's the opposite of a high pressure system, which spins to the right or clockwise, so it spins counterclockwise. Hopefully, those uh, no one got too offended by those, and you guys can remember. Maybe they'll help you remember, or you can come up with your own to help you guys remember that. All right. The reason high and low pressure systems rotate in different directions depending on the hemisphere they are in is due to the global air circulation pattern of Earth's atmosphere. All air circulation and weather, for that matter, is due to uneven heating of the Earth's surface by the sun and thus heat exchanging from one area of the atmosphere to another. Remember, I said all weather is caused by a heat exchange. And all air circulation and weather, for that matter, is due to uneven heating of the Earth's surface by that sun, which thus causes a heat exchange from one area to another. The sun heats the areas near the equator more. This is what we call the tropics. And heats the areas near either pole a lot less. Add in the rotation of the Earth, which rotates counterclockwise, and you get the general air circulation patterns that meteorologists and climatologists use to understand global weather patterns. And I have a visualization of this which sort of shows the lines near the tropics, shows the lines of air movement near the poles and everything around that within our atmosphere near those areas that are caused again by that basic uneven heating of the earth's surface these circulation patterns can be found on a smaller scale as well due to the fact that the earth land heats and cools at different rates than water or a liquid a prime example is the convective circulation patterns associated with sea breezes Land heats faster than water. 
So it heats up and cools down faster than a liquid does or water does. Therefore, during the early parts of a day, the land will be warmer than the water because it heats up faster. The cool, dense air over water moves inland where it starts to heat up and rise over the land because of that hotter land below it. As it rises, it cools and forms clouds before once again sinking back to the water. And again, I have a visualization of this so you can see what I'm talking about. It's kind of hard, but these are sort of the scientific processes that that meteorologists and climatologists use to come up with the air circulations at the high, the big level, at the global level, as well as the local level, right? So we talked about the local level being caused by these the land heating at different rates than the water and the air. So you have three different things that heat at different rates. So when the, the sun of the day comes, you're going to have the, the, the land or the air hotter or colder than the water next to it. And that difference in temperature is going to cause heat exchange. And remember, heat exchange causes all weather. So you get that heat exchange, you get a circulation of air movement, and then you get moisture condensing and evaporating, and that's what you get weather. And then at the larger scale, we have the uneven heating of the Earth's surface near the equator, right? That the more heating near the equator, less heating at the poles, and then the Earth spinning, that causes the larger trend movements of global air circulation. So you have the larger sort of macro at the global level, and then you have the lower local level, like near near bodies of water and things like that. So it's all a scientific process and sometimes it's multiple scientific processes all boiling in to this crazy system of weather that we have on planet earth all right i want to get into determining the stability of an air mass but before i do that i want to take just another quick break uh take a quick quick breath for myself and give you guys a quick announcement that i think you guys will find useful Hey pilots, this is Nick again. Did you guys know that Part-Time Pilot now has a private pilot test prep book that you can buy on Amazon? It's a physical book that you can buy on Amazon to help prep for your FAA written exam. So it's like the other test prep books out there, you know, the Jepson, Asa, or the Gleam, Glime, however you pronounce it. It's just like those but I called ours the ultimate private pilot test prep because not only does it give you a synopsis of each subject like the cliff notes like those other books do and then it gives you FAA written questions to practice and quiz yourself on to, to prep for the test but it also goes much much further and that's why we call it the ultimate private pilot test prep book so for each subject it also has a QR code so that as you're reading it, you if you want more information, you can scan the QR code on your phone or your tablet and it will immediately pull up a YouTube video that you can watch on the subject. There's also QR codes in there for additional downloads including FAA, PDFs, subject area checklists, and more PDFs for, from us that you can download for free. It also includes a coupon code and QR code where you can go enroll in online practice tests for free and receive the PDF version of the book completely free. All that is with Q simple, easy to use QR codes inside the book. 
And then we also, not only does it have the cliff notes of all the information, but it also includes mnemonic devices and visual aids, such as diagrams, tables, and images that are labeled, such as like a METAR that is labeled every single thing that is included and deciphered in the METAR or a TAF. Also the performance charts, step-by-step -step labeled steps on performance calculation charts. So it's not just cliff note bullet points, it's that plus much, much more, these visual aids, all in 404 pages in the Ultimate Private Pilot Test Prep book, and it is only $37. So you can go check that out on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes, so go check it out. The last topic I want to talk about in this lesson is determining the stability of an air mass. To determine the stability of air, pilots can measure the difference between the actual temper temperature lapse rate and something called the dry adiabatic lapse, lapse rate. Those are fancy words, so let's just say for our purposes that if the actual temperature lapse rate differs from a preset nominal or normal lapse rate, then the air stability is going to change. Air temperature is normally highest near the surface and decreases with altitude. This normal lapse in temperature or lapse rate creates an upward flow of air from the surface to the upper atmosphere. If that lapse rate is increased, meaning the rate of temperature dropping with altitude increases, then the upward flow will also increase and you will have more unstable air. Remember, we talked about unstable air or Turbulent air is when you have that vertical movement of air. So when the lapse rate increases, the temperature you know, changes more with altitude. You get more airflow up vertically, and you get more unstable air. If the lapse rate is less than normal, then the upward flow will decrease, and you have more stable air. If there is a temperature inversion where you have low temperature near the surface and high temperatures above it, yes, this is possible, then the air will have stable layers of air within it. Both stable and unstable air have their advantages and disadvantages for pilots. Stable air has low turbulence and smooth air, but can have stratiform cloud layers and ceilings, continuous precipitation, fog, and fair to poor visibility, especially in the presence of haze or smoke. But what about unstable air? So again, I just want to sort of reiterate a couple things I just said. So you might think, oh, well, stable air is what I want to fly in as a pilot. Yeah, that will be a smoother ride for sure, but also has drawbacks. Because that air is more stagnant, if you have anything like haze, smoke, or precipitation, not only are you going to have cloud layers and, and low ceilings, but you're also going to have that stagnant air, which is bad for visibility. So you're going to poor visibility. So it comes with, with a cost. And I talked about a temperature inversion. Temperature inversion, inversion is where it, it flips. Usually the temperature decreases as you increase in altitude, but it can actually flip where you get a warmer layer of air higher than normal. So it actually, as you go up, the air temperature actually increases and this can create sort of like a, a lid on the air and and it stops that airflow from flowing up normally in that lapse rate and it can trap things like smoke or haze below it and you, you also find that with fog a lot you'll get a lot of fog when you have that temperature inversion 
And we'll get into more into temperature inversions and fog, but I just wanted to mention that. So what about unstable air? The most important thing to remember is that unstable air is rising air. Rising air causes turbulence. So what are some things that can cause an air mass to have rising air within it? You've probably heard the term that warm air rises. This is true. So if there is warming of the air mass from below, the air will begin to rise as it warms and create unstable air and turbulence. If the air is moist, then the rising unstable and moist air creates cumuliform clouds and showery precipitation. Remember, we kind of covered that in the warm and cold fronts. We said because the warm air is less dense, it's usually the one that rises. And so, that can also happen if air is warmed from below by, like we said, like warm land, because land warms faster than water. If that warms the air above it, that air will rise. And when you have air that is moist and warm and it rises, it causes those building vertical building cumuliform clouds and showery precipitation. Another cause of rising air is terrain, such as rolling hills and mountains. Wind blowing over a hill or mountain has no choice but to rise. This rise in air can be felt far above the surface of the mountain. If winds of 40 knots or greater blow across a mountain ridge, possible mountain wave turbulence can be anticipated, even if the air is otherwise stable. So I want to repeat that because that is actually an FA written question. If winds of 40 knots or greater blow across a mountain ridge, possible mountain wave turbulence can be anticipated even if the air is otherwise stable. And this is because the air has to rise when you have this rising terrain. It has no other choice but to rise and it can be felt far above the surface of the mountain. That's why if you're in a general aviation small aircraft and you're not sure on the climbing capabilities or the surface stealing of your aircraft over this particular mountain it's best to fly around the mountain so you don't have to worry about having this possible mountain wave dangerous mountain wave turbulence and other rising air that can be well above that surface because again it forces the air upwards uh, there's one positive about unstable rising air and that is that it normally has good visibility which we kind of talked about. As the air rises, the moisture in the air condenses to form clouds, but within the unstable rising air below the clouds will be clear and good surface visibility conditions, unless, of course, it starts showering from the clouds above. Characteristics of unstable air are turbulence, good surface visibility, cumuliform clouds, and showery precipitation. The knowledge of air mass systems, the weather they bring, the directions they generally move, is helpful in getting a quick synopsis from graphical weather charts. However, this level of detail is not enough for piloting an aircraft. In order to depart from one airport and land in another, a pilot has to know the local current conditions of the two airports. The forecast conditions at the two airports, the conditions aloft at the planned altitude between the two airports, and forecasted weather systems in the general larger vicinity of the route. So we talked, today we talked about these larger sort of air pressure systems and fronts that you would see on a whole map of the United States. But as a pilot, especially general aviation pilot, where you're flying more so locally, you need more detail at the local level of your weather and at the more detail at the exact altitude that you will be flying. And that's what we're going to get to in the next lessons. Uh, we're also going to go through more hazardous weather and the details of hazardous weather. All right, so a general rule before we, we leave you here with that, 
the last thing for determining the stability of an air mass, the general rule to remember is rising air is bad weather. Cold fronts force warm air up equals bad weather. Low pressure systems swirl and rise, bad weather. So anytime you have air rising, think of it as bad weather as a pilot. Just that fact right there will help you as a student pilot get the basics of weather systems down a little bit. Again, we're gonna get into a lot more detail and this was a long lesson. I thought we might get to the next lesson which is thunderstorms, but I think we're gonna call it quits there. My voice is a little tired and it is a lot to, to, to take in. I have a video that I'm gonna put in the show notes that kind of covers everything we talked about so you can get that visual representation of these fronts and pressure systems. So go check that out in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Next week, we're going to get into lesson two on thunderstorms. Then we'll go into lesson three, which is wind shear, and maybe lesson four on temperature inversions. So we're going to start getting into the more detailed nuances of weather, and then we'll even get into the report weather reports and how to read them and all that stuff. This is a big section, and it's a very important section. So thank you guys for listening once again, as always, and I will talk to you guys next week. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors, and $22,000, and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot now of course it's not that we're not thinking but it's that we understand things like weather aerodynamics what our instruments are telling us what atc is telling us we have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them and when we don't have to think about them we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations if we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with atc for bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft when this happens 
if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, at, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gained, the currency, the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft, they start making mistakes, and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again. And they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family, they finally say, you know what, this has to stop. We can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress, you know, and they end up quitting. Now, so how do we avoid that? Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. When I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic, again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so read. for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step -step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices, have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.